Hi, I'm Melissa Chen. And I'm Angel Eduardo. We're the hosts of the Fair Perspectives podcast, and we're excited to announce our show is moving to a new YouTube channel. Thank you to all of our listeners who have helped make Fair Perspectives the success that it is, with enough content to need its own home. Keep following the show at our new channel, Fair Perspectives, with the link in the description below. Please subscribe there to make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes. We're thrilled to have you as part of the Fair community. Hi, and welcome to Fair Perspectives, the official podcast of the pro-human movement brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. I'm your host, Melissa Chen, and my co-host, who you will hear from shortly, is Angel Eduardo. Today, we speak with Salome Sibonet. Salome is a writer, visual artist, and social critic. She hosts the podcast Silver Eye Society and publishes her essays on her Substack Spiritual Soap. Salome's work spans the topics of identity, both her own and as it functions in society, psychology of the self, and sociopolitical subjects such as hate, love, the culture wars, and spiritualism and mythology as functions of human expression. In this episode, we discuss Salome's background as a woke communist, her work as a writer and cultural critic, why shame, guilt, and misanthropy seem to be so prevalent in our culture and discourse, how best to engage on social media, and why Alex Jones isn't the problem. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Salome Sibane. Salome Sibane, thank you so much for joining us on Fair Perspectives. So excited to be here. So this is kind of an inside thing, but if anybody who follows your Twitter will know, I had to ask right off the bat, how was the cruise? Oh my God, we can start there. <laughs> it's a disaster. It's terrible. It's the downfall of civilization. It is contained on a carnival cruise. I, it's chaos. <laughs> I mean, the amount of consumption of like bland foods, it's just the incessant music that somehow I don't recognize any of it, but it's all bad. It's just too much. It's too much. <laughs> And, and hey, everybody that was on that carnival cruise, they wanted to be there. So I was the fool. So I took it as kind of like a safari into a place that I normally wow. wouldn't be. And it was interesting in, in that regard. Yeah. But I really don't like clown decor. I find that upsetting. So Carnival Cruise actually does live up to its name. They have like porcelain jesters attached to some of the walls randomly. The decor is its own story. Oh, man. So please don't sue me, Carnival that Cruise, sounds... but like. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so like I, a nightmare. I, I, yeah. I have this impression that, that cruises are like vessels of the last men, you know, like it's just a floating <laughs> hell. <laughs> um, your impression is <laughs> It's just an impression. Okay. It's, it's, oh, like uh, literally it's a reality. the last men, like the yeah. last, Ooh, the yeah, last draft picks. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, like Nisha's last men. Oh, okay, okay. I thought you meant yeah, like, like in a the, dating way. Not making yeah. it. 
the the this is the part yeah. of a society that is not quite not quite going to make it. They're hanging out on Carnival Cruise. Like the last the last resort for these poor guys is to is to have women literally trapped. They, they you know they can <laughs> run away, but they'll eventually come right back to them. <laughs> well, they ain't running far with uh, the diet that Carnival Cruise has them on. So don't worry, everybody <laughs> on that cruise they were having a blast. Just I was just there, like okay, this is a part oh, of man. society I was not familiar with. I'm sure we'll hear a lot more about it in your work, but um, I, I think <laughs> yeah. I think we should probably start by just you know asking you to tell us a little bit more about yourself. I'm sure a lot of our viewers and listeners aren't as familiar with you as they should be. I agree. So why don't you give us a little potted bio of who Salome Siboney is? Okay, well, I am an artist, primarily a writer. I have a podcast and a newsletter. And in those mediums, I like to analyze culture. So you can consider me a, a cultural critic, but also I come at everything from a philosophical lens, primarily existentialism, because I think that mm, we are in a crisis of meaning in the West, particularly where religion has fallen back and we're trying to make sense of our world with haphazard stories, which people tend to just gravitate to narratives and ideology and politics. And so we see a lot of this polarization and this, you know, restricted perspectives that people apply to the world. And I came from that background. I am a story of leaving behind that kind of restricted politics-driven uh, perspective for something more expansive. So all my work revolves mm -hmm. around that, around perspective and how you can expand your perspective and how becoming more aware of perspective is probably going to be one of the most important things that our society needs to develop for going in any positive direction. Mm, tell us a little bit about your story in particular. Huh? Mm, What's your story it's a exactly? Spicy story. So I was <laughs> like a card carrying woke type. I was communist. I had all the arguments. Wow. And, and this is, you know, put, to put a little note there, as a Cuban-American identifying as a say. communist. Yes, yes. This, that's a story in yeah. and of itself. But that speaks to the seduction of certain ideologies, certain narratives, and um, particularly coupled with the youthful naivety that I had when I was younger. And so I came from exactly the perspectives we see now that are characterized as being woke. So uh, malicious forms of argument where you disparage people's morality as opposed to the argument itself, the argument from power that everything is a power play. And in that you are justified in doing anything because, well, you'd have to fight power with power. And what else? What, are, what other past sins did I commit? <laughs> This, well, what basically happened? How the whole did you thing. shift out of that? So, yeah, that's that's an interesting question, obviously. I, I mean, and it's, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm Dominican, Dominican-American, so I, I know Cubans. Cubans have married into my family. We're, we share that same spice. Awesome. And I know what it's like to argue, to argue with, with you. So, <laughs> so how mm -hmm. did you get out of that? How did you get out of that thing if you're so yeah. obviously smart? but also tenacious and also committed to this thing, this ideology. I love this podcast. I like, I just come on this podcast and get complimented. <laughs> I love it. So <laughs> yeah, this is a big question and it's something that I 
am continually trying to answer in my work because it's no simple thing to just shift your perspective very intensely and to drop certain beliefs that are oftentimes lifelong beliefs like politics and worldview. So there was a few precipitating events, a breakup, moving to a different city, reading a lot more philosophy and all of that merging at the same time to kind of pull the rug out from under me in a way that forced me to see things differently. So I think that you know, this is this kind of uh, ties into the the common rock bottom story about why people change, which is you finally hit something hard enough that it made you stop just long enough to reassess where you were. And luckily for me, a breakup isn't you know the the worst kind of rock bottom. It's just something very painful, and um and that pain coupled with starting to look into all these different ideas like existentialism, like nihilism, like absurdism, and seeing how these things were starting to fit at the same time for me. So at the same time that I realized, well, I don't know something because I thought the relationship I was in was going well, thought I was doing everything right in life, and I had the rug totally pulled out from under me. And then I started to join that, that life event, with these new ideas I was learning about and see how they made so much more sense to me than trying to force this perspective that had led me to a place of pain instead. So it was a process of self-discovery for you and looks like you kind of, you know, like your, your life changed in various ways. It wasn't just an intellectual shift. Do you notice like there was something else beyond just like, okay, I have a new set of ideas was did, did, you know, aspects of your, uh, the way you related to people change? Did, you know, what other changes did you see other than just like, okay, I have a whole different way of looking at the world? Yeah, um, that's a great point because it isn't just intellectual. And that's something that's really important to me, trying to figure out what's going on in our culture and trying to find ways forward is to approach this, honestly, not even primarily from the intellectual sphere. Because I think that we've, um, and as I say, this as a writer, so it pains me, but I think we have worn down the option of words very far to the point that people are just throwing words at each other and they don't mean anything. They're, they're using words manipulatively. Words are, const- we know this, like everything, the definition is always subject to change. So the intellectual realm doesn't suffice to solve our cultural problems right now because they're particularly driven by emotion. And so if you're not addressing the emotion, then you're not actually addressing what these ideas, what these problems are tethered to. And so, yes, I have this intellectual, this new intellectual framework to analyze the world, but it was coupled with a shift in my personality too. It was really like, I just started to relate to the world differently because I let go of this kind of like restricted narratives that I had. And I started to see how they were not serving me because I had hit this rock bottom. And so it's such a, it's a hard thing to try to, to try to see what, why you changed and why you are the way you are. Because I always look into my past and I think, how could I have been so different than I am now? And whether that was me being like five years old, 15 years old, 
25 years old, it's so hard to understand how you change your perspective. But I think that that shift of experiencing some pain, tying it into new intellectual pursuits, like frameworks, but also starting to to relate to the world differently in a place of less fear and starting to know myself more and have more of a sense of purpose. I actually started to pursue things that I cared about more. I started to write more at that time. I wasn't really doing what I had cared about in life when I had these viewpoints. I was like teaching Chinese at like 3 a.m. like on online. Like I was doing like this kind of fake jobs (laughs) that you do just to like make money. And then, you know, kind of, I guess, figure out what you actually want to do or pursue that. But I wasn't doing that. I wasn't actually pursuing what I wanted to do. And the more I started to have a life that reflected what I actually wanted and cared about, the more I did not feel attracted to worldviews that were restrictive and the kind of past views that I had that were so, there's a kind of guardedness that marks the way that people argue like these ideological positions because they're not earnest. No one's really willing to have an open discussion and say, this is what I really think. And, you know, Mm. now tell me what you really think and let's see where we fall in the middle of that. It's always this argument from a position of, I won't ever admit that I'm wrong. I won't ever admit that there's any fault. And I think that's a very insecure position. And so as I started to develop like a self and a life that felt good, felt real, made sense to me, I didn't need that anymore. I didn't want to be bitter and resentful and guarded and and combative in just for the sake of being combative. And so it allowed me to kind of drop these things, these ideas that really were marked by those kind of sentiments. And it's like this opening up. And so I think that process is so important to where we are in our culture. And it goes back to your point of, you know, is this just an intellectual thing and how it really isn't because I have a sense that people are very deeply unhappy. And I think that we can hide from our emotional strife in intellectual arguments. That leads us to, to the sort of stuff that you write about often in your Substack and stuff like that. But first, I wanted to ask you if you've thought about and if you have what you've done to kind of inoculate yourself against this thing. I know plenty of people who you know, they say, I used to be super, super woke, or I used to be super, super anti-woke. And then they just flipped sides completely. And they're just as fervent and they're just as zealous as they were before now. And, and even more so in a way, because now they need to counteract all their past behavior in a way. So it's, you know, the, the zealotry of the recent convert kind of thing. I wonder if you've thought about that, if you've thought about how much of that is propelling you now? And if you have, and if it is, what you do about it? I'm going to scream. I think about it all the time. I'm obsessed with this <laughs> because I'm watching everybody turn yeah. into the mirror of what they hate. I'm watching people adopt mm. the exact opposite position of what they hate and just become 
as narrow-minded, as rigid, as rude and mean and nasty, but in the opposite way, as if that's somehow yeah. better. And it's, it's, it's complex because there's a very yin and yang element to it, right? Which is we have these elements in our culture that are very regressive to, on the left. So they go, we'll just put them on the left. And then you have as this kind of counterbalance, this regression on the right. And so it seems like people feel compelled to become the opposite extreme, to fight the opposite extreme. And in a way, sure, there is a kind of balancing out that happens there. What I hope is that we don't go too far to the extremes too quickly and cause too much damage because I think that there's already in our culture a growing desire for things that are less extreme, for a middle path forward, as opposed to just running into our, you know, behind our trenches and digging our heels into the other side. Um, so I'm obsessed with this yeah. topic because it's unfortunate to watch people be molded by what they hate because that's ultimately what it is. And that's what I remind myself as a safeguard against becoming reactionary, because that's kind of what it is. It's a reaction to extremes on one side. And fair enough, those are unpleasant and dangerous things that you're reacting to, like censorship, whatever it may be. But you don't want to let you, yourself, become shaped by what you hate. That seems to me to rob people of their individuality, their journey through life, because that path is now getting dictated by what you oppose. So I really ground my life and my work in principle, in values, because things like truth, compassion, courage, those aren't going to be as subject to extremes as an ideology is, as a current event is. And so it keeps you really grounded if you check in with yourself and say, okay, what is the courageous thing to do in this situation? What is the compassionate approach to this issue? Because that exists outside all the extremes. That exists within you solely. That's something that you have to come to. It's a decision that you make yourself. And in that way, it's so much more organic. It's so much more you and human. And that's something that people should really value. It's your right to decide your life, your life's direction for yourself, as opposed to being this ping pong ball that's just getting pushed back and forth by whatever the current ism we're fighting today is. Yeah, I, I do. One of the tweets that you um, put out, I, I actually retweeted it, was about how you didn't want to be like that little monkey with the symbols kind of reacting to the, the trending topic of the day that there's something unique about modern life where we can train basically, you know, the collective attention of a, a large swath of the population to talk about the same thing. And so... You know, you act, you actually actively make it a point to like, if something, if Leonardo DiCaprio is trending, it's like, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. 
Um, <laughs> it's like a, you have to kind of overwrite that because you see everyone's talking about, I don't know, the slap of the Oscars heard around the world and everyone wants to weigh in on it. Um, and you said, imagine if, you know, what, what that says about our world that our attention is so easily shaped, so easily directed. I mean, I think that's actually a very profound point. I actually never thought um, about that before, what that actually implies. Um, and I, that's a profound yeah. point. Yeah. yeah, it's really, it, it's like it creeps TGIF. me out. <laughs> like, you needed you needed to watch TGIF back in the day because you needed something to be able to talk to everybody about mm. on Monday. But now right. it's like every day is Friday. Yes, every right. minute of every day is Friday, and if and if not you don't in the know good way. With you know Adam Levine, if you don't know what's going on with Adam Levine, you can't talk. What to do people you have to like say? You're missing out. Yes, it's like yes, this, yes. This perpetual digital FOMO. <laughs> oh my gosh! And again, it comes back to that: like, yeah. are you the ping pong ball? You know, if, if your thoughts, your thoughts, that's, that's what's in your head. That's what your life is. It's your thoughts are being dictated by an algorithm, by, a, 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 by Twitter. You want your brain to be a reflection of Twitter? That's terrible. That's dystopian. That's truly <laughs> dystopian. Like, let us be very right. honest about how bleak that is. And I resent it. That's yeah. the thing. I've kind of developed this, like... I think you should be extreme about certain things. That's the thing also. I think that you can channel that like intensity because we live in intense times. We are way overstimulated. We're all inundated with bad news and like the kind of news that's meant to make you feel like everything is going into catastrophe. So yeah, of course you're going to feel this like heightened, like, oh, oh, there's a war and I need to fight and I have to get online and I have to let them know and I have to, ah, this is a terrible way to live. You have a nervous system and it's begging you to log off because that's a terrible state to live in. Mm. If you're being pursued by a lion, fair enough, live in emergency, live in this sense of intensity. But you have to, for yourself, cultivate a life that is outside of that kind of like extreme circus. And so what I like to do for myself, because we do live in extreme times, is to channel that Dream, that, that sense of intensity into things that actually serve me. So I'm incredibly extreme about not letting what I think about be dictated by an algorithm. That's something I'm mm. intense about. I'm incredibly extreme about not becoming the ping pong ball in our culture, not finding myself suddenly, you know, I'm going to put out a think piece on Leonardo DiCaprio or whatever. I won't do it. I refuse. <laughs> I refuse. And so I yeah. think that that's really uh, something people can need to consider because you don't want, like you're, you. you're losing out yeah. on your original thought, on your, your ability to think freely yeah. and like the kind of originality you can bring if you go outside and sit there and stare at the grass, that is going to be more original and interesting than opening Twitter and being like, what is it today? Okay. Joining in. That's it. That's like, uh -huh. it's your perspective is being <laughs> molded. It's freaky to me. Yeah. yeah. It's like the little mermaid. I made the mistake. Of, uh, of hey, you're going to, you're going to jump in sometimes. You got to jump in sometimes. It. We're not perfect. Well, see, <laughs> I, I, I shouldn't. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, everyone's got the same weakness, right? We're all human, but oh, man. it's, it's even dumber in my case because I've already said all I need to say about that specific mm. topic. Not, not, well, that particular topic overall, but not this specific case, right? I've, I've written yeah. about it. I've talked mm -hmm. about, it. there's literally a fair video where I talk about the, basically the same thing. 
So it was a complete waste of time. And I did a terrible job of, of phrasing my, my point. And it got completely just piled on and it, it turned into a, a complete clusterfuck. So it was a total waste, right? But I very rarely make that mistake because I'm, I, have, I share that intensity for, no, I'm going to make this thing work for me. Uh, you know, we had Jonathan Hyde on the podcast uh, a little while ago, and we talked all about this, about how in productive, constructive engagement with these platforms requires discipline. And I try my best to have that discipline. And I think you have it too, because, you know, Melissa and I were talking about what your Twitter feed looks like. And she was saying, I think she's right. She was saying that there should be like a coffee table book of all your, all your tweets <laughs> because they're just like slamming quotes. They're That's just the these best great compliment quotes. ever. <laughs> um, but, you know, so how do you keep yourself, you know, because you do dive in, right? You do get into mm-hmm. it. You are playing with fire, right? So how do you keep yourself from getting burned? What do you do? What are your techniques for maintaining that thing? Yeah. Okay. Great. Great question. And thank you so much for appreciating my Twitter feed because I cultivate it like an obsessive person. Like it I have shows. a quotable quote. Yeah, <laughs> yeah really good. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, so one time I did, this is a good example. One time I reacted to something like, you'll, you'll probably notice that I rarely retweet. I, I, or rather, I don't retweet actually. And I, I rarely quote tweet because I, and this is, it's just kind of idiosyncratic to me, but I like the idea of my, my platforms being very mine, being a reflection of me and producing something mm. original. And while, you know, quoting something, you're writing something original to it. I, um, I don't, it's a reaction and I like to not be in reaction, but to create or organically. And, um, and of course, even then like you could say, oh, well, I'm reacting to a book or whatever. Fine, fine. But I prefer that. I prefer to react to a book, something, you know, whole, something tangible, something meaty than a tweet. So that mm. is the ethos behind somewhat how I cultivate my existence on social media. Um, but I... I one time I did quote tweet Keith Olbermann because I was trying to show what a great example he was of being hyper partisan to the degree that you become just nasty, a nasty, mean person. Mm. And then I look back at my Twitter feed after that and I realized, oh, now this example of someone being nasty and mean lives on my digital real estate. And I hated seeing it. So why did I put it on my feed? Now I have to see it forever or whatever if I don't, if I don't delete it. So it kind of just um, reminded (laughs) me of something I already felt, which is I want to produce, I want to be, I want to have my accounts, my platforms, all the stuff that I'm doing be associated with something constructive. I want them to move forward. I want them to go up. Um, I don't want them to be in reaction you know, negative, upset, angry. And it's not that like plenty of the stuff I write is biting and, and fierce and intense and, and it has an angry tone to it, but it's not at someone. It's not an attack or like a tirade or a tantrum. It's just passion directed at the medium I'm using. And so I, I come at it like an artist. I view social media as a medium through which I can choose 
how I'm going to express myself and cultivate this weird digital persona because that's what it is. And um, you really do, you will become affected by what you consume. You will be affected by what you pay attention to, by what you react to. And so if you view the, that as a cost, there is a cost to you know, spending all day in people's mentions and like just sharing stuff that you hate all the time. There's a big cost to that because you're, you look back at your Twitter feed then, look back at your Instagram and whatever. And if it's filled with things that you hate and filled with moments of you being upset and, and in reaction, you're creating this like history of yourself that is so kind of sad and unpleasant. I'm proud for people to look at my social media. You know, when I, my feeds and all that stuff, I, I take pride in having them be things that perhaps bring some beauty, some lightness, some newness into someone's day. You know, it really does. Actually, I have, I, I just so the audience knows what I'm talking about, you know, randomly I'll be scrolling through and it's all news and reactionary stuff and memes and people complaining about things and then people complaining about people complaining about things. Um, and then I'll come across <laughs> your tweet and it'll be like, freedom is not needing strangers to understand you. Or the other one, like everything and everyone becomes indescribably more interesting when you stop forcing your pre-held beliefs or narratives and instead apply genuine curiosity. And it's like, what? A, a, a breath of fresh air. Um, especially amid all the, you know, the, the sea of snark and cynicism and nihilism. I mean, sometimes your tweets are nihilistic. That's true. Uh, but I think you have this kind of <laughs> searching, you're, you're, you're searching. It's, it's constructive in a way because you're always searching for something. And I think that's, that's a really that's, great way uh, to characterize it. That's very powerful. It. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I really you're, appreciate you're, I, that. You know, like I consider you, uh, oh, welcome. I do consider you a culture critic. You described it uh, in your intro. And there is a lot to talk about. Maybe that's where this conversation should go about yeah. what's wrong with the culture. What are the things that Salome is so pissed about, about the direction our culture is going? <laughs> because there are a few themes I can see um, you're, from your writings or your substack. Uh, you're very anti-censorship, anti-authoritarian. Um, you have a lot of uh, thoughts about the impact of that on art, on what it does to the human soul and creativity and kind of narrow-minded views. Um, so could you diagnose for us first, what is wrong with our culture? Yeah, real quick. Just, yeah, just, yeah. just, uh, just <laughs> in two <laughs> seconds. Give you a line. Yeah. yeah. I am actually going to, to take that. <laughs> I'm going to take that challenge <laughs> and give it to you as succinctly as possible. I think that individual people are deeply lost and afraid and because of that, they crave anything that promises them security and an answer. And usually the first thing to promise those things is not truly going to provide them. And from that stems all our systemic societal issues, um, growing authoritarianism, growing censorship, repressive culture. All of that stems from people seeking a quick escape from their own fear and suffering. So that's my diagnosis. It's mm. pretty good. You reminded me of one of your rare, your rare retweets, which is a quote. 
I'm not going to get it exactly right, but it's basically, you know, love and appreciate those who seek the truth and beware of anyone who has found it. Something to that effect. Yes, yes, right? exactly. Beware um, of those who are like, it's something a, a very convinced that they have found it. Yeah, something to that effect. So the certainty is really the issue, right? But you, you talked about, you mentioned this at the top and you mentioned it a little bit just now about this search for a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, a sense of edification, a sense of connection. And all the weird, you write a lot about all the weird ways that people try to satisfy those needs. And misanthropy is one of them. Like that's an interesting kind of backward way of, of, of getting meaning out of your life is through hating people mm -hmm. and hating things <laughs> and grounding, grounding your sense of self in all the stuff you hate, like you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, talk a little bit about that because there's, there's that. And then there's this kind of corollary that you also write about, which is shame and guilt. And it's, it's sort of different flavors of the same kind of thing that you're touching on. And, and they all seem to be propelled by this, this need. Like why, why do I need to feel constant shame and guilt over this or that thing that I do have or don't have or didn't do or did do? And why, why does that in a weird way kind of transmutate into hating people and, and being that person? <laughs> like what, what's going on there? What do you think? Yeah. Well, I wrote an essay about guilt for Aereo magazine a while ago mm -hmm. because this was a lot. This was like three years ago. Um, so pre-pandemic. And it was kind of my one one of my first more public forays into dealing with these illiberal leftist ideas like white privilege being something that people should constantly atone for. And I found that to be tied into guilt, which is not new. <laughs> the idea of white guilt has been around for a while. But I wanted to dig into that further because it seems like the worst kind of guilt is the one that you don't have a reason for, that you just feel this mm. sense of guilt and shame. You just feel like you're wrong and you don't know why. That's terrible. Because at least if you have done something wrong, but you know what it is, you have a little bit of a map there that you can say, well, right. I'm not going to do that again. But if you just have this sense of self-loathing and inadequacy, but no real reason for it, you're going to look for reasons. And those reasons are like a kind of pseudo escape from the guilt because you can never really escape from it by you know, looking outside yourself, blaming. Um, and then that's what I think a lot of our politics um, stem from because they are so blame driven. And so it's, this world is so bad. There's so much suffering. I have so much suffering. Let me find all the ways outside me that I can point to for why this suffering has been caused. And guilt, guilt seems to me to drive a lot of like the kind of, neo-leftist politics we see now where people feel the need to constantly atone and tiptoe and and everything is like so sanitized and we need to make it safer and safer and safer it's it's marked by this this sense of of weakness and fear and i think that people feel like they are bad and so if they just make the world better like just let's just fix everything let's get all the problems out let's Let's make sure everybody is as safe and, and happy and contented as possible. 
and then I'll be a good person for that. And I think that it's not, it doesn't work because it's self-serving, first of all. So if you're trying to do things out in the world just to absolve yourself of, a, of your self-loathing, that's, that's self-serving and it's an indirect thing. So it's like you're doing something, but you're actually trying to do something else while like through doing that thing. And the indirectness there, this is why it's so important to be self-aware, to interrogate yourself and to know, well, why am I doing this? Why do I believe this? Why am I pursuing this? Because if you're doing things with this kind of indirect attempt to get a different outcome, which is, well, it'll make me feel better or it'll get rid of my sense of guilt and self-loathing, you've already added a yeah. step in the middle there that can cause a lot of um, inaccuracy. Like your, your aim is not going to be as good as opposed to just saying, right. I want to see this become better. And that's truly what I'm aiming for. Okay, now I can go after that problem directly. And so I think people mm -hmm. hide what they're actually trying to get at um, behind politics, behind ideas, behind beliefs. A lot of it really is just this, I'm afraid, I suffer, I don't know why, and I don't know how to get rid of this. I'm going to go pursue it outside myself somewhere. I'm going to escape from this. And misanthropy mm -hmm. and cynicism, this is, I speak from experience when I criticize these things because I was misanthropic. I was cynical. I think those, those sentiments go very well with ideologies like communism because they posit the idea that humans are inherently leaning towards destruction. Humans inherently are flawed to a degree that will always beget something negative. And if you accept that premise, then it makes sense that you would do as much in your power as possible to prevent humans from making all the mistakes that they're inevitably going to mistake. You would try to control every outcome. You would try to make everything as safe as possible because you believe that humans inherently are always going to end up in the negative, that they're incapable of you know, bringing about good things in the world without coercion and force and control. And so mm. at the same time that I was very misanthropic and cynical, and of course this was at the same time that I was very unhappy with my life because I wasn't pursuing things that I cared about. I didn't have a sense of meaning in my life. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I felt confused. And that was, that was scary to me because I had all these ideas for who I wanted to be and I had no idea how to make those real. And so instead of dealing with myself, which takes a lot of mastery, that actually takes skills, you know, self, you know, introspection, that's a skill, self-analysis, being able to sort through your feelings and, and really be honest about it. That's a massive skill. It's very hard to develop. And I'm still trying to develop it constantly. But when I didn't have those skills, it was so much easier to turn around and say, well, my life is bad because the world is bad and the world is bad because all these people are bad. That's <laughs> misanthropy. And right. cynicism just goes in hand with that because it's like, well, if my life is bad and the world is bad and all these people are bad, bad things are going to keep happening. Bad things are going to be the more likely thing to happen. And so there you have cynicism. 
But mm-hmm. if you if you are able to escape that cycle, which I was through being able to develop purpose in my life, being able to have a sense of meaning, having a worldview that gave me a map for moving forward in the direction that I wanted to go in, and it actually worked. Once you start doing that mm. and things start making sense and you realize that you can enact positive changes in your life yourself, everything follows from there. Because then now I see that, well, if I ask people for what I want, if I try to build the things I want to see, if I open up to other people and allow them to be how they are and don't need them to approve of me, then all these positive things start to come from that. And then you become the opposite of a cynic. You become the opposite of a misanthrope because you can see that, well, you somewhat can control those outcomes. It doesn't have to be bad people around you in a bad world that make bad things happen all the time. It can actually be the opposite. And I Mm. feel that. I live that to myself. And so I think, you know, to sum up all of this, if you think that the world is bad and that people are bad, then you're going to create a world and a life that proves your belief about it because that's what you're anticipating. If you don't believe that, if you believe the opposite of that, that people can and have created many positive things, that people can do good things, that we can create systems that uplift our ability to do good things, then you're going to see that when you look around your world, because it's going to be what you're looking for. It's confirmation bias, but like hacked mm-hmm. to be positive for you. And um, right. I think that that's, that's been the cure for me. We should, we should thank whoever broke up with you because <laughs> this wouldn't have happened. Wow. <laughs> I mean, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> this wouldn't have happened probably. Who knows? Honestly. Yeah. Who knows? Should be a card carrying member of the DSA by now. right well yeah no it's 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 interesting what you're saying but i do see the cynicism and misanthropy too in reaction to kind of rampant wokeism that seems to be pervading almost every aspect of society right because people feel like they can't do much um it's in our hr departments it's it's in Mm -hmm. boardrooms it's enshrined now in some federal policies and so, you know, the, the cynicism now is, is also being reflected on the right and in mm-hmm. the counter to uh, woke ideology. And so uh, it's, it's not really just on one side now. Uh, I would say that cynicism seems to be kind of dominant uh, because both, you know, it, they just feel completely um, helpless. Yeah, that's an important point because then it requires us to like zoom out and look at the culture as a whole, you know, as opposed to um, one political party or one group or whatever and say, well, what is it about our culture? Yeah. I feel misanthropic when I see like, I don't know, the market cap for OnlyFans is like 30X, the market cap for GE or something like that. You know, I'm just making that up. (laughs) But but stuff like that, I'm like, oh, just burn it down or, or, you know, yeah, some, something yeah, yeah. like a, the a high school teacher 
in Ontario and Canada is wearing these, you know, big, ridiculous. Oh yeah. That's the thing of the day. Right. Hey man, that to me, I'm like, burn it down, burn it down. I'm like Sharia law. Let's bring Sharia law (laughs) to America now. So no, No, I feel somebody who would probably be totally fine under Sharia. (laughs) I'd like to remind you that you will not. So, <laughs> I'll probably be fine. I could, I could do whatever I like, wear whatever I like, walk around. I would you be fine not, as the so fourth wife. I would be, I'll be fine as the fourth yeah, yeah. wife. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but you I see how you these stories kind of radicalize, like you know, the other side oh, for too, sure. to just like you know feel this cynicism, feel this, as you said, this like complete yeah. dejection of of humanity's fate. I know, I know, and it's like. I saw that story too. And it was one of those kind of things that really just strikes that feeling in you. That's like, it's very hard to be a humanist right now because it's so, there's so many elements to it that just feel deeply wrong. And there's going to be events like that though, continually, because I also remind myself, well, we live in this weird time where you otherwise we would have never heard about that you know and so there's a degree to which you have to remind yourself that there's a possibility that you're seeing a lot more bad news than you ever would have yeah. not necessarily that things are as bad as they always seem it's not like you know the rest of human history was a cakewalk um right. in some in some regards like yes we have our problems like that is a bit that's so there's so many things that are disturbing and enraging but at the same time well this is our battle and i prefer this battle than like an actual war or a famine or you know or all like the settings any any battle i can fight in my boxers on my couch (laughs) is preferable from your phone yeah (laughs) yeah hey but yeah it's a better time I don't think it's a possibility. I think it's a certainty that we are getting a lopsided perspective on how the world actually is and how it's working. You know, we had Steven Pinker on and his whole thing is things are actually pretty great overall. That doesn't mean there aren't problems and there aren't things we should care about. There are. And those things are very important. But putting them into context is actually helpful because it prevents that sort of misanthropic reflex. And you, you know, will win, actually. Knowing, that's the knowing, thing. If yeah, you right, can maintain a right. perspective that's not not in the extremes, that's not in this reactionary, the sky is falling kind of you know sentiment, yeah. you're in a better place to make accurate decisions, to strategize mm-hmm. more accurately. This is the thing. When you're in this emotional state of like, everything's terrible and this is a war and the the civilization is falling. Right. Like, yeah, in some regards, it definitely feels like that. I get it. I get it. But you have to differentiate that those feelings and those emotional reactions that are, of course, going to happen when you see this news that's insane or, or mm-hmm. purposely meant to make you have an emotional reaction and then kind of like right. click in to that other side of yourself that says, okay, let me step back. I know that I am in the craziest media landscape that has ever existed. I know that, and yet I sit in a safe, air-conditioned home with food in the fridge. Okay, you know, like 
balance those perspectives out. And then you have like the stuff with Steven Pinker and and these things that it's like the statistics actually show less poverty, all of these things that are good, but we don't even look at that. Like we don't even spend a moment, you know, celebrating our successes. And so we probably, I mean, okay, we all have a skewed vision of reality because that is just the nature of not knowing everything. But on top of that, we probably have an even more skewed view of things. And I check myself all the time because when I saw the thing with the teacher with the giant like prosthetic breast, I was like, am I in the rabbit hole right now? Is this a thing that Mm -hmm. the algorithm is feeding to me that's going to make me feel like the world is ending, civilization has is falling, yeah. but like all these other people are just like da, 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 like going about their life. And I'm like, don't you know? You know, like it's so I have to right. check myself and see, okay, is this echo chamber? Yeah. Is this like, is this both? How do I square this with reality? How many of these crazy teachers yep. are there? I mean, teachers, you know, the population, yeah. it's millions and millions and millions of people. They're gonna be someone out there doing something weird, right? So even though it doesn't excuse it and it's not like, oh, okay, so it's, it's fine. We're good now. We don't have any problems. That is not what I'm saying. Um, I think we have real problems and. Yeah. I think it's like, yeah, it's like you were talking about earlier, you know, like, okay, am I going to let this thing suck me in and, and become, you know, the the thing dictating my brain for the next hour? Uh, Yeah. yeah. I've been, you know, I successfully looked at, I've, I've seen that going around and people going back and forth about it. And I've successfully gone, yeah, this is a, a ridiculous thing that I wouldn't know about if it weren't for this platform. And that, you know, and the, the other thing about it is that it's a story that is, you know, kind of, in my view, objectively silly, just a ridiculous, outlandish overextension <laughs> of, you know, everybody wants everybody to feel comfortable and feel like themselves. And, you know, reasonable people will say, I, yes, I want you to, you know, present as whoever you feel like and however you feel. And whatever's comfortable with you, you know, and I think it's an overextension of that, of that slack, like in a way of, you know, you give somebody your hand, they take an arm and then the rest of you. And the it seems like boobs. one of those ludicrous. <laughs> yeah. Like Which it seems huge. like one of those, one of those ludicrous sort of things that are like, all right, dude, like, come on, you know? And, and it seems like most reasonable people, most, which dude? is most people. Yeah. So Cancel. most people would, well, <laughs> uh, yeah, I caught myself. I caught, yeah, I caught that. But it's a, it's a, it's a gender neutral dude. I'm using yeah, the yeah. royal dude. Dude is gender. Just, so know, <laughs> just to be clear, it's the royal dude. The dude abides. Yeah. But yeah, so um, you know, it's the kind of thing where it's not. It it's something where reasonable people, which is most people, would just say, "Okay, this is silly, right? You're just being outlandish, mm-hmm. um, or whatever it is." But because of the world we're living in and the discourse we're stuck in, it, it isn't that. It isn't a story that takes two seconds for you to look at and go, okay, that's silly. And then just walk away, right? It's that's something that, no, point. now I need to take a side on this. And it needs to, it needs to, you know, as you said, take up my entire day going back and forth with people arguing about whether this is okay or not, or whether it's, whether it's outlandish or not, whether it's representative of most people who are in that general you know, cohort of, of transgender, non-binary, whatever, right? This is clearly an, an, an outlier. This is a silly, ridiculous example of something. And then it's, you know, on one side being put up as the quintessential version of this thing, right? And then yeah. on the other side, it's, it's 
blinders. Everyone goes, no, yeah. everything's fine. This is totally fine, <laughs> which is crazy, right? But yeah, the only yeah. reason anybody's even bothering with this stuff is because of the, the miasma we're in, where you have to take a side in some way. But but yeah. let me okay, let me push back on that because I I, oh, I think one of the, one of the problems is actually that. You know, I remember when maybe it was 2014, 2015, there were always kind of like stories that flare up every now and then from colleges, you know, like, Mm -hmm. oh, this is the protest going on campus today, canceling here, canceling there for really stupid reasons. I remember at Harvard, one of the stories was that, you know, the students who were living in the dorm were were trying to get a soda stream canceled in the contract because it was an Israeli company. Um, And, (laughs) and, you know, you're supposed to boycott Israelis. So, you know, things like that and, and, or, or race stories that would come up. And, and when people, you know, the the few people that push back, people would say, well, that, that's just fringe. Don't worry about it. It's just a few Mm -hmm. college students. And then about seven years later, it's 2022 and we wake up and it's, it's everywhere. It's kind of like permeated, you know, all the spaces at every level of society. Mm -hmm. So, so if we don't register our discontent, I think there's this worry that people mm-hmm. really think that, you know, the, the Bolsheviks, the, the minorities here can actually really radically reorganize American life as we know it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, okay. and that is kind of where I'm like, maybe we should say something because when we didn't for a while, um, sure. you know, the, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, yeah. so I, I don't disagree with that. I just think. This is a, this is not, you know, the way that some people are framing it is that this is a clear example of the norm Mm -hmm. for, of that, of them, you know, that side of the argument, which is clearly not true. And I think, I think basically we should respond, we should react to things, but we should respond to them within a certain context and with a certain, you know, understanding of how crazy something actually is versus how normal something actually is. Yeah. And yeah, so it's not, it's not to say. You shouldn't say anything, but I would never, I would never point to this story and say, look at what's happening all over the place everywhere. That's not the thing that's happening all over the place everywhere, right? There's two, there's two, you're both making two parallel points. I see them as being like, I don't actually think you cannot have both. I think that you can look at an event in the news and say, this is probably an aberration. This is probably a novelty, hence it being in the news, that already marks it as, well, it's in the news because it's something that is likely right. going to, it's, it's not the norm. But at the same time, that's, this is how I like to think about things, which is like in terms of uh, far out projections, as opposed to just like, oh, this one event, I'm going to freak out about it. What's the story around the whole event? So, and, mm-hmm. and, and what does it, what could it precipitate? What can come from that? So to your point, Melissa, like, then you look at this and say, yes, okay, this person, this is probably an aberration, but now we have a precedent, which is, so here's an interesting event that from, from which you can then decide to analyze culture uh, as a whole, which is like what culture criticism is. It's like taking events and saying, well, what does this say about our culture, if anything? And you don't do that with things that are just random things because then you're not actually going to make sense. You're just picking random things. Like there has to be threads that can mm-hmm. tie into the larger culture. And so something like this is heated because it does have those threads because it is very easy to say, ah, see here, we knew it was going to happen. 
okay, fair enough. What I would say there is that like, okay, so now we have presented, we're presented with a dilemma and it won't be the first time that this dilemma appears because there is like in this particular example, what an annoying example to have to like have a deep conversation about, by the way, because it's so ludicrous, but <laughs> that's what this, I, I know. That's what I mean. You know, like, I yeah, know, I know. That's what I mean. Exactly. I, and yeah. this is why I, I resist so often, but in this example with the teacher and the prosthetic breasts and whatever, we can say, okay, right. so now we have a, an ethical dilemma, which is to what degree does your right to self-expression trump the, the professional environment, the, the, the communal right. environment, the school's mission, which is to educate children? You know, where's the balance there? So I like to zoom out then and yeah. say, okay, now we have an ethical problem. Is it? Is it actually an ethical problem? Because then if you expand it out and you, you leave off the particular event, now you have just the, the themes of the problem, which is the ethics of, mm -hmm. you know, personal expression or so, however you want to liken that. And then the, um, you know, the, the rights of the other people that are in the situation and the goal of the actual environment, which is to educate. And so here's right. the themes. You don't need the example anymore. You have the themes. And from there, you can say, is this going to actually become a problem? Like, do these ingredients look like they could reoccur again and again and again in new ways? And that's when you say, okay, yeah, this is something that we should consider right. it as, um, as a possible harbinger of problems to come. And even then, though, yes. you can differentiate that from your emotional response to it, right? Which is like, then I right. become misanthropic and cynical and reactive and say, this is the end. Yeah. Like this is, you know, we can't, no one can have any rights because this is what happened. You know, like it's very easy to right. fall off so, and to go to the extreme. I, I agree. I think that maybe the, the point for me is what conclusions people draw about the questions that you have posed, right? Like what are the, what are the thematic elements? Uh, what are the things that it says about our culture, right? Some people might say, this this shows that our culture is completely you know perverted and morally corrupt and you know whatever right and in and you know in a in a kind of sexual way right that some people will argue it that way and i think that the situation at hand is fairly fairly simple and the the response is obvious like if it were if it were a, you know a woman with her natural breasts and and they were protruding in that way it, we would, the conversation would last five seconds. Like, listen, you can't, you can't, you can't do that at work, right? You're at work. Especially woodshop class. This is a woodshop teacher. I know. So there's, the like, yeah, it seems like a there's machines. It's an occupational right. hazard. So it seems like a hazard, but yeah. So it, you know, the, the conversation would be two seconds long. That's what I mean. That's what I was trying to say is that the conversation would be two seconds long. It's like, Hey, you know, this is a workplace. You're a teacher. Like there are certain standards. Like you just can't do that. It doesn't matter what the identity of the person is. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, it, the only reason it isn't a two-second conversation is because of those specific details. And I think that the thing it says about our culture is more about, you know, this is how far people will go to defend their side, regardless of how objectively ridiculous a circumstance or situation is. And that's the thing that's really the thematic problem for me, right? Mm -hmm. The thing that I would zoom out and say is, look at how objectively insane a circumstance can be and how little people's behavior changes in response, right? Like you don't see everyone on Twitter going, okay, yeah, this is silly. 
Like this is making everybody look bad. (laughs) You know, this is, this is making the conversation about legitimate concerns about trans people and and non-binary. This is making that conversation impossible because Mm -hmm. we have these ludicrous examples, right? That's what reasonable people in my mind would be saying, but they're not saying it because we're so steeped in tribal conflict. We're so steeped in our teens that this is, you know, (laughs) this just becomes another (laughs) like, yeah, it's crazy. It's Um, a weird thing. But But yeah, that- that approach, the thematic, you know, like expanding out, that's yeah. the tweet that you'd see me put out simultaneously would be that. Because that's right. often what I do right. is actually look at an event and I do react to it, but I divorce the event from my reaction so that I mm. connect what I identify in that event to larger themes, to my my values, my principles, and filter it through there. And then it becomes a timeless criticism then it becomes something that right. can yeah. have value and can... Evergreen content. Ever, you got to make that evergreen you. content. See, see, we out here. See, bo- both, of you, both of you are sad. angels c- compared to me because, <laughs> yeah, both of you are complete angels to be able to... <laughs> you know, because what this story for me is, if you can imagine your ideological enemy doing this in order to boost uh, that side. So imagine, you know, like some of these... Uh, hoaxers like Tatiana McGrath, you know, uh, these personas created to kind of mock social justice narratives because they take such an extreme position that it leaves you in this pretzel logic. This is exactly what the story is. It's like, I can imagine this is actually Matt Walsh from The Daily Wire, (laughs) who's just acting this to make it so ridiculous that he puts you in a corner and now everybody looks stupid and the Mm -hmm. emperor is naked. Um, mm-hmm. And nobody does to call it out. So that, that that's where <laughs> I am on this story. And that's why I couldn't stop laughing. It's just, it's just, oh, I'm, I'm a teenage It boy, really I is that. I mean, yeah. it's one of those things yeah. that it's like, I think we're living through an absurd time. Like absurdism as a philosophy is probably mm. more apt than anything I can think of for understanding our times. Because something like that, it's like, there are at the same time, these deep, dark implications going on. And yet it is the most clownish example of those problems that we could ask for. Right. And our, our inability to recognize how clownish it is, right? Like, I, you know, I wish this person well. I hope they're happy. I hope we figure this out in a way that everyone's cool with, right? You know, there's nothing against this person, but it's just, it's, it seems like such an objectively insane situation. You Truly. Know, that, anyway, but so we're talking about the culture. And I, before we get to our last question that we ask all our guests, I wanted to make sure to ask you about this. You have a video on your podcast, which is called Silver Eye Society, where you talk about all kinds of stuff. But you have this video, and if I'm not mistaken, the title of it is Alex Jones Isn't the Problem. And you talk about conspiracism and uh, all that sort of stuff. So why don't you lay out what you mean and uh, where, you're, where you're coming from, from that, with that video and that particular topic that you're addressing. With pleasure. It's my spiciest take that you've, uh, <laughs> you've <laughs> pulled out of uh, my history. So Alex Jones is not the problem. The premise of that, that podcast episode, it's based on a film called Alex's War. And um, essentially, it's just a documentary that follows Alex Jones around and tries to explain his life story so you can understand this person, which is... Um, an admirable pursuit and in and of itself is something that I defended in that episode because 
it is, it goes against this kind of idea that we hear now a lot, which is like, don't platform someone. And this idea that you should just erase and suppress everything that could have any potential negative uh, implication, which is how you end up living in a literal dictatorship, is that everything is controlled and everything that could possibly um, cause a problem, we do away with. Well, that is like, that's a prison. Like, that's literally prison. So we're, I'm trying to avoid that. And Alex Jones, to me, is one of the <laughs> most interesting people because he's insane, um, but he's not stupid. And insane people who are not stupid are very interesting. And he is, it's not so much that I, I don't like watch <laughs> InfoWars or whatever. I don't really um, like follow his work or whatever. Um, but I do view him as an important part of American politics because he is essentially our reviled canary in the coal mine. His hmm. freedom to be publicly insane um, and to say things that are dubious and to criticize um, government in ways that even the best sci-fi writers could not come up with is a barometer of <laughs> our culture's tolerance for free speech. And uh. being that most of his career is aimed at critiquing politics, politicians, leaders, not this one incident where he did criticize um, the Sandy Hook parents, which is what got him into so much trouble because those are private citizens as opposed to, you know, Bill Gates or whatever. And um, Well, which, he did more than criticize, I think, which is, which is the problem. Right? Yeah, he, <laughs> he, my understanding is that yeah. he, um, he essentially accused them of being crisis actors and the whole thing being false, which right. as, pri that's, you can't, you can't do that because that's essentially slander. It's a private citizen that you're right. uh, levying a legitimate claim against. And so- that's that's the line. That's actually the line of free speech then. And fair enough. Um, but I still, I, I defend his ability to do what he's been doing all the time before that because he is this perfect example of how uncomfortable it is to tolerate truly free speech in a society. You have to tolerate him. If you want to have a truly free speech society, you have to tolerate that one guy is going to have a really popular show where he accuses Hillary Clinton of being a reptile. That's the cost. <laughs> and so to me, it's a great example. Um, that It's a very strange story arc because he's gotten, you know, he didn't really get that much attention for a while until politics became a lot more extreme and divisive and he supported Trump. Mm. And that was when he was on the radar. He has been out here being loud, being conspiratorial for decades previously. And it's only recently that he's become, you know, he's come under the microscope and been censored, taken off platforms. And it's like, a lot of these things are also like, well, What's the expiration date for, you know, uh, uh, saying something that isn't true and a crime? Like, I mean, is he, does he lose his rights to free speech forever? That doesn't seem like a good idea to me. <laughs> so he's a really great, uh, uh, just a, a wonderful figure for understanding 
the way speech works in our culture, both politically and at the individual level and on media. And so that episode uh, goes into all of that. Okay. So what I'm hearing is that what you're basically saying is, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you see Alex Jones as a kind of uh, KKK rally in Skokie, Illinois kind of thing where if we defend that, if we defend that, that just shows, you know, where, where our parameters are and kind of guarantees that we're open to you because you're not insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's even less, to me, he's right? actually less, less offensive than like a KKK rally because he's, I, I like where he aims his ire for the most part in his career, which is at political elites and institutions. I think that uh -huh. there's another side to my defense of him, which is we need that. You need to have people who are rabidly suspicious of power. That's that's good. That's healthy. You, you, what what other landscape would we sure. have where everyone's just like, yes, this is okay, or or oh, I just hate them all. Like it's it's good to have a thorn in the side of your leaders, um, even if you know he go off the rails, and even if he's wrong most <laughs> of the time. Sure, whatever. There are no rails. There are no <laughs> rails. <laughs> like so I see your point but I feel like I feel like in a, in some ways maybe he's the worst example right because then he becomes the the kind of the symbol for that sort of perspective and approach and then it becomes easy to dismiss him and to dismiss the the approach as a result right like he's so objectively yeah. crazy that it becomes easy to just say that whole side of things is nuts mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. What okay, you but mean. his craziness but has a kernel of truth, though. Sometimes I think that's kind of the the uh, issue with with Alex Jones. So, like, you know, it turns out the frogs yeah. are actually turning gay. <laughs> they are gay. Yeah, <laughs> they are actually like there. There is some truth to that. I know we we mock. You know, it, it's right. so easy to mock that in some sort of soundbite. But if you look at what he's actually like, the research that he's actually citing uh, yeah. in, endo in endocrine disruptors and intersex frogs, there is something yeah. there. Yeah. I would, I would say he's a poor interpreter of the stuff that's Correct. true that he actually learns. <laughs> that's the conspiracy <laughs> part, right? His, that's what his makes book you a report conspiracy is theorist. not a good yeah. book. Is not a good one, right? <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. it's like interdimensional vampires, psychic vampires. Like I remember listening to his. I think the first time he was on Joe so Rogan, funny. it was episode nine eleven, and it was completely insane. Mm. And it was four and a half hours. I had a lot of yeah. time to kill at this, this dead but end But you job see that we're where, able to but, sit here yeah. as adults and be like, yeah, that's wild. But I can see this right. kernel of truth. And so this is right. also the thing that I, I view him as an interesting figure because his um, becoming so controversial actually seems to coincide with this growing belief that other adult human beings are not capable of the same reason that you are. And yeah. of course, that's the the underlying argument for censorship too, which is, well, I know that this mm -hmm. is bad and wrong, but all those dirty masses, no, 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 they can't figure it out. Right. So we have to make sure we do this for them. I would even throw them a bone there and say, even if they aren't, even if this huge subset of the human population is incapable of watching something like that without being influenced and then zombified and turned into you know, a clone, of of whatever it is that they just heard, the solution isn't to to prevent them from hearing stuff. It's to teach them to hear stuff mm -hmm. and not have that happen to them, right? Because and that's you the can't constructive control approach. everything. Yes, right. yes, yes. 
This so. is what I, I think I actually <laughs> said something like that in that podcast episode or another one. There was some other one I, I spoke about. It's almost the same, the same time I put it out that it's about, it was about Jefferson. Because at, you know, this idea, oh, conspiracies and misinformation, it's like this big thing now, as if this has not been part of the political landscape forever. You go back to the times of Washington, George Washington, and people were like, we think he's secretly collaborating with the French. Like there has been conspiracy and misinformation (laughs) since the inception of this country. It's actually a very core part of American politics is this kind of like um, argumentative, accusatory, heated, extreme nature to our politics. It's not totally new. The danger is just that we, we lose sight of the benefits that allowing this crazy political landscape we have to exist. Um, we lose sight of those benefits and we forget the cost of getting rid of, you know, these uh, canary in the coal mines that we don't like. Well, the question also is, is it effective? You know, I, I'm not sure because it seems to me like the arguments for banning Alex Jones would apply to anyone right now kind of promoting the earth is flat yeah. kind of theory. I mean, his level of conspiracy theory is about the same. So what is his popularity? I mean, it's, you know, he's still mm-hmm. able to broadcast. Infowars is still going on. So other platforms would host him. Uh, has his popularity increased? Because I remember when YouTube kicked him off, the number one app in the app store was he had he had an app. And so, you know, the, that was like the top download for the day. And so it's a bit of a whack-a-mole thing mm-hmm. where, you know, you try to, to prevent him from existing in common spaces, but other spaces start popping up and they may not be as popular then, but but they yeah. become popular once you, it's the strike. Exactly. It's, it's again, the strike right? effect. So I don't even know if that's worked. It doesn't that's, work. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, yeah. it has never worked. It clearly doesn't work. It just makes people that already were prone to conspiracy and believing, you know, fringe ideas justified because now they see, oh, well, you must be afraid if you're persecuting me and, and the person I listen to oh, well, clearly we must be right and you're against us. And I mean, it just justifies that. And so it's like, um, I mean, you can, you can always take right. these, these ideas and bring them down to the personal level, which is like, if I was in you know, a conversation with someone and I kept trying to like stop them from saying something instead of just letting them have their, their line and then responding to that, it would not convince them at all On the contrary, it would make them less convinced that I am someone worth listening to if every time they try to, you know, converse with me or or rebut what I'm saying, I jump down and say like, no, no, we're not going there. You know, they would just be like, well, this person doesn't actually listen to me, which is a lot of what drives fringe politics is people that feel that they are not getting listened to, that they're getting pushed out of the mainstream discussion. And hey, guess what? That is what the mainstream media does. They actually don't want a discussion. They actually do want to push people out of the discussion and have a monopoly on the narrative. So we have a big problem here because sure, Alex Jones is a problem. Fair enough for, for different reasons. But the mainstream media is not the solution. They are also a problem. 
So now we just have two problems and one problem trying to smother the other problem, which is another problem. So I am not convinced that the best course of action right now is to go after like ailing Alex Jones. Like, I don't know. I think there are, there have been a larger harm has been done than, than him, but you know. Mm. Salome, um, this was such an interesting conversation. I wish I, you know, we could have talked to you for another hour, but um, we have to wrap up in the interest of time. We always ask our guests the same last question. And so the question is, here at FAIR, we try to promote a sort of pro-human perspective to the contemporary issues that plague daily life. What does pro-human mean to you and how can everyday people achieve some semblance of it? Pro-human to me is doing what enables other people to pursue the best in their life. So by becoming a better version of yourself, you actually are in a better position to help other people. And then creating a society that other people can pursue what's good for them rather than trying to conform to what you think would be good for them or trying to force them into what you think would be good for them. I think pro-human is to be anti-force and to create a society that enables humans to flourish of their own will, because that is ultimately the most triumphant thing that any individual can experience is to become better of their own hand, not because they were pushed. Mm. That's really you. lovely. Salabi Simone, thank you so much for joining us on Fair Perspectives. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating and review. You can also access exclusive podcast content, such as Q&As and bonus episodes, by visiting us and signing up at fairperspectives.org. For weekly fair news and opinion pieces by members of the fair community, visit our Substack at fairforall.substack.com and tune into Fair News Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to join or support the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. Thanks again and see you next time.